0: not believe me when i tell you this you may really believe me when i tell you this i'm not sure but chances are many of you might wonder if i'm a little crazy the bible is a very easy book to understand you might be thinking which bible are you reading but it is you see back in the old days well i mean the really old days People didn't own Bibles. In fact, until about 400 years ago, nobody owned Bibles. If you wanted to read the Bible, you really couldn't read the Bible. You had to go someplace where it was read to you if they wanted to read it to you. In the days of Jesus, nobody owned Bibles. They had scrolls, portions of the Bible, not even the whole Bible put together, but they were circulated around synagogues. And if you wanted to hear, if you wanted to read the Bible, you had to go hear it. Have you ever wondered why Paul said faith comes by hearing hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Because people didn't own these. The fact that we own these is the greatest, glorious privilege that I think humanity has ever had. That you can hold God's voice in your hands. But you see, here's the other thing God wants to be understood. Did you know that? He put this all in writing so that we would understand Him as far as He wants to be understood. He's telling us about Himself. He's telling us about his will, his mind, as far as he wants to tell us that. There's, we have all eternity to spend with him, and we'll never get to the bottom of him, even in all eternity. But we do have this. The people who would gather to hear what a prophet wrote down, or an apostle wrote down, when these books were read to them and they listened, they understood every word of it. The Bible was not written to theologians and PhDs and divinity professors. It was written to peasants, illiterate women. Why am I picking on women? Because none of the women knew their letters back in those days. It was written to children. It was written to people, people, people. Not to the specialists. And that tells us something. When you read this and you say, man, I don't understand it, I will tell you this, somebody did at one point. It may be a few thousand years removed because it's an idiom that they used way back then. It might be an expression that was used a couple of thousand years ago, but they understood it and it brought the point home. And these people didn't think the way we think. You folks, all of us, me included, our education system in the Western world is very Greek. We think like philosophers. What's that mean? Like Sherlock Holmes, he always had to solve the clues. Here's all the clues. Let's figure it out. And we abstract in our minds. The people who lived in Jesus' day, who walked with Jesus, most of them didn't abstract well at all. And when he taught them, he went to the lowest common denominator to make sure they understood what he was saying. And they still got him wrong. And you know why? They presumed, they presumed, that since they believed he was the Messiah, he was going to take up the sword and he was going to destroy the Romans and set up his throne on earth and rule with a rod of iron and rule the world from Jerusalem, from David's throne. They presumed he was going to do that. And someday he will. The Bible clearly says he will. But they thought it was then. And Jesus kept telling them, no, I'm only here for a short time. And then I'm leaving you. I'm going to go away. And then I'm going to come back for you. That's what I'm going to do. And they thought, well, that's not what the Messiah does. He must mean something else. And we don't understand it. But he kept telling them in the simplest of terms. And one of the ways that he did it was he used the example of a wedding. Now you say, well, Jesus didn't talk much about weddings. Oh, yes, he did. Now, his followers... You've got his disciples, his apostles, right? Where were they from? Galilee. They're also not highly educated men. They're people who missed the cut when the rabbis came through, looking for Galilee's best and brightest to educate them. And they told these guys, you go get a job. And off they went. And then Jesus comes by and he picks them personally. I want you and you and you. Follow me. And they're Galileans. And they think like Galileans. And they have Galilean traditions. And guess what? Jesus is also a Galilean. And so he spoke to them like Galileans. And when he taught his disciples, he often used things that Galileans thoroughly understood. And when he wanted to tell the Galileans about his coming, his second coming, his departure and his second coming, he used something that they thoroughly understood and many of his disciples had already experienced. A Galilean wedding. Why a Galilean wedding? What's the difference? Well, a Galilean wedding was just like a Judean wedding, was just like an Arab wedding back in those days. The Arabs were there too back then. They weren't Muslims back then. That didn't come in for another 600 years. But they were there, and they all kind of did the same wedding traditions, except they had a different religious emphasis perhaps, except for one thing. The Galileans did one thing different than anybody else. And that's what I'm going to tell you in a little while, because it'll change everything. And Jesus used it. He talked about weddings frequently. But unless you were a Galilean, you might never notice it. It doesn't change our doctrines. It doesn't change the teachings of the Bible. But when you know this, suddenly it's like a can opener, and all the contents come out, and you say, I had no idea how much Jesus really loved me. Back in those days, if you wanted to get married, it wasn't as if you found the perfect girl or the perfect guy and you started dating or courting or whatever. It usually didn't happen that way. A man and a woman could fall in love with each other and they had certain traditional procedures that they would go through to finally end up in marriage. But that was the rare, rare, rare exception. Usually when people got married, it was because there's a papa and he has a little son about five years old. And the papa might be a merchant or a craftsman, and he's wandering through his village doing business, and he looks down uh, as he's walking through the village and notices a little crowd of children, and he steps around them, and suddenly he looks and he notices this little girl who is looks very healthy, quite strong. She plays. She's got a good attitude. She laughs a lot, but she seems very deliberate. She's three years old, but I think she'd make a very good bride for my son. You see, that's the way they would do things back then. I know this is just a hypothetical. There could be a million different ways it happened, but let's go with this one for a second. So he looks at the little girl, and he says, I know who her father is. I'm going to invite him over and ask him for her hand in marriage for my son. (laughs) That's an arranged marriage. Now, some of you are probably horrified by the thought. Some of you might even practice that. It's possible. I mean, we even have some people in our church that kind of think that way a little bit, but that's what they did back then. They would make an arrangement because love didn't put food on the table. When people got married to each other, especially if the papas arranged a marriage, what it did is increase the family because it doubled the size. It increased the wealth. It increased the influence. If it was a political family, it really increased the influence. It increased merchantry and all of these sorts of things. So love wasn't a consideration. Let's get them together because I think I know that family. That's a good family. We will prosper. They will prosper. If we get together, we'll get the kids married. And so he invites the other papa over to the house. He comes over and the papa who has the little boy sets up a feast. And the feast is, oh, it's a, you'll see one tonight. But it's a great feast because he wants to impress the other papa, and they sit down at the table, and the papa of the boy wines and dines the papa of the girl for hours, sometimes even days. You say, days? What did they do all that time? They enjoyed it. They didn't have clocks to keep track of things and punch clocks to, to keep track of your hours. If they needed to stop doing something, they stopped doing it and went and did something else. That was just life. And so... The papas eat together, and finally, at the right moment, the papa of the boy pops the question, how about your daughter becoming engaged to my son to be married one day? And if he agreed, then he brings in a scribe. Maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's somebody who is a professional scribe, because people didn't write a lot in those days. And besides, what are you going to write on? Have you thought about that? You got paper around the house? They didn't have paper. What are you going to write on? Parchment? Too expensive. And too far away, it's over in Turkey. What are you gonna write on? You're gonna write on a pottery shard? you know, with, with some charcoal, or you'll etch it into leather, or scratch it into wood, or scratch it into a stone, whatever you've got. But what you're about to negotiate with, between the two papas has got to have two identical copies, because it's a covenant. It's the what the wedding is going to be based on, the requirements of the husband to the wife, the requirements of the wife to the husband, how much the bride costs. They got to negotiate on the cost, because you have to buy her. You were bought with the price, therefore, honor... God with your bodies. Paul said that, didn't he? Once was about slavery, but look at the other context. It's about being a bride to a bridegroom. You have been bought by the Father with a price for his son. You're the bride of Christ. Now, guys, I know it's Father's Day. We're manly. But he still calls you the bride of Christ, so get over it. We're the bride of Christ. The church is Christ's bride. He's the bridegroom. Well, They go into these negotiations. What's the price of the bride going to be? 20 camels and 10 donkeys and a small flock of goats. The dowry, the papa of the girl has to have a dowry in case anything happens to the husband, to the boy. If he dies or becomes incapacitated, how's she going to survive? So he's got to come up with a certain amount of money approved by the father or the bridegroom. And then that's negotiated. And they go through negotiations about, hey, how about this one? How many children and of what gender the bride's going to have someday? You think, oh no way. How do they do that? Yeah, I think good luck with that one. But they actually would put things like this into this covenant. It was called a ketubah, by the way. That's the Hebrew term for it. But this covenant that they wrote down duplicate copies. And you, you, now I want you to think about this for a second, You know, the, how many kids and, and, and what gender? Have you noticed as you read the Bible? I hope you read your Bibles. But especially in the Old Testament, and sometimes in the New Testament, even with somebody like Elizabeth, you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the the parents of John the Baptist, that it was always considered a big disgrace if you were a married woman and couldn't have children. Well, that would be a big disgrace in a society where you needed children, but there was another aspect to it. If you have it written down in that contract, you're supposed to have this many children and of which gender, and you can't have kids. And they always blamed it on the woman, by the way. It was always her fault. It was breach of contract. No wonder it was a disgrace, because a covenant is a life-binding contract, which I'll get into in just a second. I'll really—you you probably don't know what it is. You think you do, but I don't think you do. Now, because we forgot about it about a hundred years ago, we only think we know what it means. I got to show you what the Bible says it means. Now, they get together and they—they they do this negotiation. They make these two duplicate copies, and when they're done with the copies, they're read very carefully, word for word, letter for letter, line for line, to know that both copies of this. Ketubah, this covenant about these kids is identical. And when they're satisfied, then the Papa's part company and each one takes his own copy and puts it into what they would call their holiest shrine, which isn't an idolatrous site or something. It's just a part in the room that's like, sort of like the family safe where they would keep ceremonial cups and plates, things used for high purposes. And they put it in there and they leave it until the children of, are of marrying age at the ripe old age of 14 or 15 years old. That's when they would get them married. And as the day approached, they would start making plans. We need to get our children engaged. Actually, betrothed. Let me use the correct word. We need to get them betrothed. Now, I'm going to confuse you here for a second. A betrothal ceremony in those days with the Galileans was everything. Because when two people, these two young people, were betrothed to each other, they were legally married. But they weren't allowed to live as husband and wife for another year. You say, well, if they're married, why can't they live as husband and wife? They are husband and wife. That was just their tradition. You say, why did they do that? I have no idea. I don't know if anybody has any idea. But there are some things that are very important that happen in that year. So when they go through this betrothal ceremony, you would, if you were a witness, you would look upon them and say, they are legally married. But you would also know they will not live as husband and wife for another year. You're going to the betrothal ceremony, and they start getting the kids prepared for the day when it's going to happen. They pick a day, and maybe the second, sab- uh, second day after the next Sabbath, they would measure it by Sabbath days because that's really kind of how they mark time. And they would, the, the, uh, on, the, on the day of the betrothal, the girl's family would have the girl's sisters, if she had sisters, and her friends, her girlfriends. And they would stay with her and the mother and the aunts and all of the the family members, female family members, would wake her up that morning, and they would dress her really nice. They would give her some food, and then they would take her very quickly off to the synagogue, where there's a thing there called a mikveh. A mikveh is basically a tank. It's it's water. It's a holding tank, like a like a like a, a bathtub almost, with stairs going down into it. It's carved out of bedrock, lined with plaster, filled with rainwater, and they would dunk in this as a matter of a cleansing ceremony. Which I can't go into all the details on that today, but man, it's really interesting. So you would dunk into this, this, this uh, cleansing thing because it, what it did is you were saying, I'm going back to the time where well, they thought of this tank. It wasn't a bathtub. They wouldn't scrub. It was a ceremony cleansing where they said, I'm going back to the time in my life when I had no sin, when I was in the water of my mother's womb. That's the way the Jews thought in those days that they wanted to present themselves before God before they did something very sacred, like doing a sacrifice, making a vow, ending a vow, or perhaps even uh, getting married. It's a very sacred thing. And so they wanted to say, God, I know that I have a sinful nature. I know I've sinned all my life, but I want to demonstrate to you that when I enter into this very sacred thing, I'm going back to the, the state that I was in before I could ever sin. Because even though I was conceived in sin and had a sinful nature, even when I was in the womb... I couldn't sin while I was in the womb. That's the womb. So you're going back into your mother's womb, as it were, when you dunk in that tank. And when you step out of that tank, you were born again. That was the expression they used, and that's where it came from. Jesus didn't make it up when he was speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus already knew what it meant. Nicodemus's problem was he was a Pharisee and he was really smart and he knew that procedures and laws couldn't take your sins away. How do I get back to that state in this life where I have no sin? And that was his problem. That's what born again meant. And so she would do this and then later on, the boy with his friends, all of his brothers and his buddies and his uncles and his dad, they would come down, and he would do the same thing. Of course, the boy and the girl had to do it separately because, please forgive me, but you had to do it naked. So, you know, because it's a born again thing, right? So that's what they would do. When they're done, they go back to their houses, and then everybody prepares for a great celebration and a parade. And they get all kinds of musical instruments—kalils and horns, trumpets, but uh, drums, whatever they have, tambourines—and they rush out of the door, both families at the same time, because you can hear them making all this noise even across the village they're getting ready we're getting ready let's go down to the city gate and that's where they would have it a village gate a city gate but they would have a ceremony out by the gate so the families burst out of the houses the uh, the one family with the girl the one family with the boy they come through the streets singing and dancing and blowing trumpets and everybody knows hey this is going to be really fun some people come along and they want to watch because what else are they going to do with their day it's boring back then they didn't have those little phones you could play with you know So off they go down to the city gate. They merge into the city gate, these two families singing and dancing and having a great time, bringing the boy, bringing the girl in a very honorable procession. And they burst through the gate. They come outside. A couple of boys come through, actually four of them, holding a bundle of four poles with some cloth wrapped around the top. Somebody points to a spot outside the city gate that's a very convenient and likely place. They set the poles up. All four boys grab a pole. They pull out. And the next thing you know, you have a a little booth with a canopy. It's got four poles poles with a roof on it. This is where the betrothal period is going to take place. It's called a hupa. H-U-P-P-A is the way we'd spell it. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, the play or the movie, the wedding takes place under this canopy. They even sing about it. Will there be a canopy in store for me? It's one of the lines in the song because that's where weddings took place. But you know, in Jesus's day, weddings didn't take place under the canopy. Only betrothals did. And it was interesting why they did it under a canopy because you say, well, that's a great tradition. Every tradition they had meant something to them. They saw something that we don't see. We just see the instrument, but we often don't think the meaning. cloth over the top. Often people have said they use a prayer shawl. Today they use a prayer shawl. Back then they didn't have Jewish prayer shawls like they have today. They would use the finest piece of cloth they could find. And when they pulled the canopy out, yes, it made shade and that was a nice convenience. But what the canopy really meant was this is the place where covenants were made. What do you mean by that? When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, And God went to make a covenant with Moses, with his people, with Israel. God descended on the mountain in a cloud, and it was his glory. And under that cloud, God gave Moses the covenant. The canopy is the cloud of the glory of God, because covenants are made under his glory. They're made in the presence of God and witnesses. Well, the canopy goes up. The family gathers round, the bride and groom take their place under the canopy, the papas flank them at either side, and suddenly the crowd grows and grows and grows. It's not just the family is there, but suddenly all the people that are standing outside the city gates get up and say, hey, look, there's going to be a betrothal. Let's go watch. Because once again, what else are you going to do with your day? And so you get lots of people. There are are beggars there. There are thieves there. There are caravanners who come in because caravans would go back and forth between these villages. There might be even a magistrate or two, an elder or two, because they sit as judges at the city gate. Is there a rabbi? Nope. No rabbi. They don't need a rabbi for this. This is a public ceremony where these people are going to be making a covenant with each other, and it's established in the presence of witnesses. Have you been married? If you're married, you had guests. These people didn't care about guests. They cared about witnesses. And they wanted as many as they could because you can't make a covenant without a witness. The witnesses have to ratify the covenant. And every time a part of the covenant happened, all the witnesses would shout, Amen. All the witnesses would shout, No, 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 no. All the witnesses would shout. Much better. We need to let Newcastle know that there are Christians in here, okay? But they would shout Amen after every single incident that took place during this covenant. Now, here's how it would go. The bride and groom are under the hoopah, the fathers are at the both sides, and then the fathers take out those two identical covenants that they wrote down, those ketubah that they had. And they would read them, or if they couldn't read, that's a possibility, they would have somebody else read them. And as they stood there, this, this, the terms of this marriage are read one line at a time so all the witnesses can hear it, so that when the papas agree that this is the terms of the marriage, all the witnesses would shout amen, and that meant that the papas knew Everything in that covenant, and they couldn't say, I didn't know that was in there. Somebody cheated me. You see, it established it, and you could not, not go back. Every time Amen was shouted, there was no going back. And so they're in front of all the people, the covenant is read, the ketubah is read. And when it's read, then the fathers look at each other and they agree, and all the witnesses shout. Amen. And then the next thing that happens, because in that covenant, there are a couple of things that are very important: the price of the bride. The price of the bride now physically has to be brought in so all the witnesses can see that it was not only she was not only paid for, but the price was accepted. And so one papa motions and suddenly his family comes in or servants come in bringing the 20 camels and the 10 donkeys and all the goats bringing in. And the other papa goes over and he inspects them. And he, it just took time. It didn't take just a couple of minutes. It might take an hour. And he personally inspects all the animals and then he goes right back over by the hoopa and he nods to the other father. It is accepted. And now everybody shouts yeah. because he can't say that guy cheated me. I accept the price of the bride. There is no going back. The next thing that happens is the father of the bride produces a little pouch of money, whatever was agreed upon for the bride's dowry in case anything happens to the bridegroom that would support her if anything happened to him. And he, he passes this over to the father of the bridegroom. The father of the bridegroom counts it and he inspects it and he makes sure that the right coins are there and the right denomination of the coins are there. And when he's done, he puts it back in the bag and he hands it back to the father of the bridegroom and he nods and everybody sees it's accepted and the whole crowd of witnesses shout, and now the dowry has been accepted. Now it really gets down to the nitty-gritty. Everybody focuses their attention now on the bride and groom who are standing under this hoopah, and they are waiting for something to happen to. The bridegroom is now handed a gift. The bride is handed a gift to give to each other. They're going to exchange gifts. And the exchange of gifts indicates at least a social acceptance of each other. The bridegroom may give the bride a piece of jewelry of some sort. It, it may be a, a nose ring. He said, nose ring? Yeah, that's a wedding ring back in those days. It could be on your finger. It could be on your nose. They had all different ways of indicating they were married. He could give her a necklace or a bracelet or something else. Or if he was really, really poor, and I like this. He could be st- a really poor family. Here's the bridegroom. He doesn't have a gift to give to her. So he pulls out a pruta which is simply a bronze coin worth about a nickel. And then he hands it to her. You say, what a cheapskate. Not if it's everything he has. Suddenly, he's just giving, given everything he has to his bride as a gift. Now, ladies, I don't know what you want to call that, but that is definitely romantic. And so you do have an element of romance that shows up sometimes in these arranged marriages. And so he might even give her that little coin. She... We don't know what she would have given a bridegroom. Historically, really not much is written about that aspect of it, but it could be, and when I do this as a presentation, which is a lot longer than what we have time here for today, we would just say that maybe, maybe she gave him a jar of perfume. Because in a land without a whole lot of water, he doesn't bathe a whole lot. And this will make her wedding night really, really pleasant if he has this perfume, you see. So maybe he gave her a jar of perfume. And then he accepts that and hands it off to the family. And then all the witnesses hold their breath. Because what happens next could be glorious or catastrophic. It's going to be one or the other, though. The bridegroom is handed a pitcher and a cup. And it's a ceremonial cup, and the pitcher contains wine. Now, they did drink fermented wine in those days. Why all the warnings about drunkenness? They drank fermented wine. However, at ceremonial things like the Passover and at special feasts, even like wedding feasts, people drank the wine diluted. Usually cut four parts water to one part wine because even a slight buzz was considered a big sin. So they didn't want people to get drunk or even buzzed. If you came to my house and I gave you a glass of water, I wouldn't just give you water. I would give you water with wine in it. I wouldn't water, water my wine. I would wine my water. Why? Because it gave it some flavor and it sterilized it. They didn't know why, but they did know it worked. So if they put wine in the water, it made the water healthy and you could drink it and not have after effects. So that's how they used wine. Well, in this case... Everybody knows this is a ceremonial thing. And the cup that he has is a very, very beautiful cup. He might borrow it from somebody or the family might own one because it's for special occasions. And he, it's called the cup of joy, by the way. The cup of joy. Good thing for a wedding, isn't it? The cup of joy. And then he takes his pitcher and he pours wine into it that is not diluted. It's straight Because it's for ceremonial purposes only. And it's really tasty. And it's really rich. But it's also only for sipping. And he takes the cup and he pours it. And everybody watches. And then he takes the cup in both hands very reverently. And he hands it to his bride. Now, when he hands the cup to his bride, this bridegroom, he is handing her not just wine, but power. For this One moment, she is given all power over the wedding. This is an arranged marriage. This is her one chance to call it off if she doesn't want it. The bridegroom can't do it, but she can. They hand her the power. If she doesn't want this man, and you're watching for this because you're a witness. If she doesn't want this man, she pushes the cup back and rejects the cup. Now, when you're talking about Jesus being the bridegroom and us being the bride... And you talk about rejecting the cup. That has some theological connotations to it, doesn't it? It kind of makes you think about, you know, don't reject Jesus. Receive him as your Savior. Receive him as your bridegroom. So she's handed the cup. If she doesn't want him, she rejects it. She pushes it back. What happens after that? Oh, humiliation, fistfights break out, maybe even a small riot. Everything ends in catastrophe and chaos and people are outraged, but nobody but nobody would deny the fact that she had the right to do it. So she takes the cup and if she wants him, then she receives it with both hands and reverently and with respect, she takes one little sip, and she hands it back to him. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief, and all the witnesses shout Amen. because now she has received this man as her bridegroom. And then he takes the cup from her hands and he takes a little sip. And oh, the covenant has been made because it's been ratified by the drinking of this cup of wine. And all the witnesses shout again. Amen. And now they're legally married right in front of everybody. Now, i got to tell you something about a covenant because I keep using that term and I already told you, you may not know really what it means. We talk about it all the time. Now, as a pastor, I do premarital counseling and I do marriage counseling, somebody who wants to get married and people whose marriages are on the rocks. And when I speak with these people, I always start my counseling with the same two questions. Because people who are about to get married need to understand it. People whose marriage is messed up, if they do understand it, their marriage tends to straighten out. Now, I'm looking at this audience of people here. You may have a great marriage, and I hope that all of you do, but just in case you don't, pay attention to what's going on. If you're wanting to get married or you're engaged, listen to this. It'll make all the difference in the world. Whether their marriage is on the rocks or whether it's premarital counseling that I'm doing, the first question I ask is this. Tell me what is marriage and i get a one word answer every time uh and then i know that when somebody says that everything they say afterwards they're making up because they didn't plan on being asked the question and they don't know what to say what is marriage Good question. And you can say, well, marriage is when two people fall in love and they get together and they decide to get married and then they they get in front of people and they make vows and then they go off and they live happily ever after, right? Because that's what happens to all marriages, correct? Your married people are going, oh my, where did you come from? No, (laughs) marriage is a covenant. One word, covenant. But wait a second. The second question I ask is, so what's a covenant? What's a covenant? Uh, <laughs> and then, well, it's it's the it's a contract between a husband and wife. It's the deal that's made before God, established by vows. Well, that's pretty close to what a covenant is, but that's really not what it is. But people just guess. I think I know what it is, and they say all of these things. In those days, they knew exactly what a covenant was. A covenant was made in a variety of different ways. I just explained one where it was made with the passing of a cup back and forth, and that established a covenant. That was a covenant of wine, the cup of joy. There was a covenant of blood. There was a covenant of salt. There were all kinds of covenants. A covenant of bread, a covenant of clothes, where people exchange things back and forth. But it made a covenant. But what is a covenant? Let me explain it to you like this. Let's pretend that you have an eccentric brother. You might be thinking, how do you know my brother? (laughs) Let's say you have an eccentric brother. Your brother doesn't like crowds, doesn't like people, doesn't like technology, and doesn't like what's going on in the world, and he's very reclusive. But he loves you and you love him. And then one day you get a phone call from your brother, and as you're speaking with him, he says, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Really? Well, what's the good news? I just won the national lottery. I'm a billionaire. Oh good news! What's the bad news? He said, with my money, I bought an island way out in the South Pacific that only knows about but me. I'm the only one, except for the people who stocked it with food, built a house there for me, and made it livable. There's no electricity, there's no cell phones. There's no internet. There's no satellite phone. I am going to go there and not be disturbed by the crowds or the technology or the news ever again. I, am, I will never see you again. Bye. And they hang up the phone and they leave. And they go to this island and you never see your brother again. Now, here's my question. Are they still your brother? Is he still your brother? Yes? Yeah, Why? Because you're kin, you're blood, you're related to each other. When two people in the Bible and in that part of the world, when they make a covenant, it makes a husband and wife, a covenant in front of all these witnesses, it makes a husband and wife in your eyes and in your mind as much brother and sister as they are husband and wife. They are now perceived by everybody that's watching, all the witnesses, that they are now physically related to each other. And that means the only way the covenant can be dissolved is by death. When is your brother not your brother anymore? When one of you dies. Do you remember, and some of you will know this, the old Anglican Book of Common Prayer? In that old Anglican Book of Common Prayer, there's a wedding ceremony that's become pretty much the Western standard for wedding ceremonies in English-speaking countries. And when you take the vows for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health and all of that, and then you get down to the end of the vows, there's a line that's become very sentimental in our modern age. But they, back in the 1600s, understood covenant. Covenant was forgotten around 1900 AD. The whole meaning just kind of went out the window and nobody remembered what it was. But back in the 1600s, they knew exactly what they were saying and writing in that little book. And they finished the vows with the phrase, Until death us do part. That wasn't sentiment, that was talking about the dissolution of the covenant. Now, this is probably troubling at least some of you in this room, because what's going through your head is you're saying, I've been divorced. What about me? Because if you're telling me a husband and wife in God's eyes and in the eyes of the witnesses of the people back in those days are as much brother and sister as they are husband and wife, then where does that leave me? I've been divorced. Well, you know the Bible and over in Malachi says God hates divorce, and he hates it. Why? Because it's a death. It's a death of a relationship. And it's painful. And if you've been divorced, you know this. Maybe you've been remarried and divorced again and remarried and divorced again. And you're saying, man, I treated a covenant as if it were something cheap and it's obviously not cheap. Now, what do I do? I'm married again or I'm not married again. What do I do? I have just a little phrase for you that Jesus said, and I want you to remember this. Do you follow Christ? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you know he loves you? Then he has something for you. Book of Revelation, twice in there. He says one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible because it's absolutely true. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. This is where you start and now keep going. Is your marriage on the rocks? Is it a mess? Then don't get the jackhammers out and break up the foundation. The foundation is a covenant. Well, I didn't make a covenant when I got married. Yes, you did. You just didn't know it. Now you know it. This is what you did when you got married. This is what makes a marriage solid. It's the foundation, it's that covenant. You are, in God's eyes, at least not genetically, but in God's eyes, related to the one to whom you made the covenant with. That is your spouse and you're on this bedrock foundation if your marriage is a mess it simply means the house has become dilapidated fix the house keep the covenant keep the foundation it's just fine so here is this couple and they've just poured the cup they've take the sip she took the sip he took the sip all the witnesses shout Amen. no 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 they shout Amen. Very good, because this is a great moment. And then the bridegroom hands the cup away, and he says in front of all the people, really his only line that he gives the whole time he's up there. He says publicly, looking at his bride, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses and Israel. And I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. Now, I think some of you in this room, if not all of you, know what that, where that came from. It came from Jesus at the Last Supper, didn't it? No, it didn't. Jesus used it at the Last Supper because it was part of a Galilean wedding. And what it meant was this, that this cup, which was a covenant cup, a cup of a newly made covenant between a husband and a wife it was ceremonial it was the cup of joy that the husband when he uses this cup to join his bride to himself at the betrothal means that now a year period of time begins before he comes back for his bride and they're apart from each other and when he gets his bride and takes her to his house then he will pour the ceremonial cup of joy again and drink it as the ratification that they are truly married at that point in time. If you remember, and especially during the time when you partake of communion together, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the cup and said to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sin for many. Drink this And remember me, for I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when the disciples heard that, they heard only one thing. Wedding! Jesus is using a wedding. He's talking about a wedding. He wasn't saying fancy words, making this up as he goes along. It was their tradition. And he connected with them on it this is going to be like a wedding. They thought he was going to rule and reign throughout the Romans, you know, get into a big fight with the Romans and take the throne of David and take over the world. And he's telling them, no, I have made a covenant with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's part of the covenant. I will be with you always. That's part of a covenant. But wait, I'm going away like the bridegroom does during this this ceremony. He goes away and then he comes back for the bride later. And after that, he'll drink that cup again when he's in his father's house. Jesus says in my father's kingdom, same thing for him. Do you see it? Like I said, it'll change the Bible for you, won't it? And it changes suddenly the understanding of communion. That we proclaim the Lord's death, which the cup represented the blood, until he comes. Who comes? Jesus comes. For what purpose? To come back because he thought it would be nice? No, to come back for his bride who is you. Well, one more thing happens at the betrothal. The bridegroom gives the bride a veil. She takes the veil publicly and she puts it over her nose so only her eyes are showing. She's wearing sort of a headscarf turban-like arrangement, and she tucks it into the turban. And then as she holds that veil up and puts it on her face, everybody shouts. Because this is another very important thing. During that year period where the bride waits for the bridegroom to come and get her, She keeps her face veiled every time she leaves her house. And it stands for something really important that the Christian church around the world is beginning to neglect because they don't think it's vogue anymore. The veil says, I'm keeping myself pure for my bridegroom, for he is a magnificent man. Purity within the church, in many churches, is now considered optional or a matter of better judgment when it comes to a bride who loves her bridegroom. It is not optional. It's what I do because I'm doing it for Him. I keep myself pure because I'm going to remain pure for my bridegroom. I don't go out with other guys. I don't fornicate. I don't do adultery. I do none of that. I keep the veil on so that everybody knows I'm taken. I belong to Him. Christians, your veil, bride of Christ, is your purity. If you're pure, it stands out in any Western society, and it's not going to be popular because other suitors are going to come along, so to speak, and say, Take off your veil. Don't do it. It, uh, It marks you as belonging to this bridegroom who's coming for you someday, someday soon. You wear the veil. It's your purity. And it honors the Lord, and it tells the world who we are we do keep ourselves pure, not to be snooty, not to be aloof. I keep myself pure, not even for the people out there or even the people in here. I keep myself pure for him because he's my bridegroom. I keep myself pure. Well, when they're done, That's the end of the ceremony. Nobody shouts amen anymore. The is packed up. Everybody goes back to their little boring jobs. The family's split in two. The girl's family parades with all the celebration back to her house. And the other family parades the boy's family back to their house celebrating in the streets. They get back there and then the bride goes to work on something for one year. She builds a wedding dress. Why doesn't she go down to the boutique and buy one, right? (laughs) That's not what they did. And in an area where it's very, very narrow, Israel is very narrow, the Mediterranean Sea's on one side, there's this nasty desert on the other, caravans coming from China and India, from Europe, from Russia, all those places north, have to, if they want to go to Africa or Arabia, where the real trade routes were, they have to come right through Israel. If you're coming from Africa or Arabia, you're going up through Israel, and if you live there, ladies, it's going to be real easy to find cloth for your dress. All you've got to do is knock down a caravan and say, hey, I need to get some cloth, let's trade and she would build this dress it would be monumental I mean, ladies, it looked like a hoop skirt, but without the hoop. It was just layer upon layer upon layer, of beautiful cloth, and the best cloth on the outside. She might even have silks in that that came from China, and she'd buy them in small pieces or if she was rich in great big pieces, and they would put this dress together with her bridesmaids, and it would take a year to do it. As the day grew near when the bridegroom was going to come for her, she prepared for the bridegroom's coming by wearing her dress to bed with her bridesmaids around her, all the bridesmaids with oil lamps to light full of olive oil, if in case the bridegroom came at night so they could light the lamps so that the bridegroom wouldn't miss her out in all the dark because they don't have street lights out there. I mean, what are you going to do? And she... Uh, she has this beautiful dress. They paint up her hands with henna, like you see people doing in India or in the Middle East, because even though the Jews were very much by the laws of Moses against tattoos, they would still paint the woman's hands and feet with all of this henna because it washed off. But one of the traditions they had is they would paint the palms of her hands with these beautiful designs. Well, wouldn't that get kind of messed up when she does things? That's the whole idea. She's not allowed to do any work. They ought do it all for her. She's like the queen. So they paint the palms of her hands so that she can't do any work lest she smear this beautiful makeup. They're near Egypt, so she knows how to paint her eyes even though her face is covered with a veil. And then she waits for the bridegroom to come. And that takes a year. As the bridegroom goes home, He goes home, and he does two things. He has to put together a great feast. If you're poor, that's difficult, but he has a year to put this feast together. This is where the wedding feast is going to be held. It's going to be held at his father's house where he lives. The wedding feast is there. That was the tradition. The papa of the bridegroom hosted the feast. The bridegroom had to put the feast together. He takes a year to do it, but that's not the hard part. You would say, but that'd be tough if you were poor, and it would be. But the hard part was that he had to add a room onto this compound where the family lived, because families clanned up, they all live together in the same compound, so he has to add a room onto it. Maybe you remember this verse. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, Yes, some of you said mansions. That's the King James Version. But the King James translators, as good as they were, did not understand the context of what was going on because they didn't understand what I'm going to tell you, and I think some of you already know. And so they put mansions. But really, the word translates rooms, and the context dictates what kind of room. For in my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus said. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come to take you to be with me where I am, that you can be with me forever. You know the place I'm going. Now, what did you just hear? Wedding. And what did the disciples hear? Wedding. But they didn't get it, because the very next question that's asked is, Just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. They just didn't understand why he kept talking about a wedding. But they did understand he was talking about a wedding. They did get that far. They just didn't know why. So I wanted to point that out. When you read it, you're going to say, boy, what a bunch of dunderheads!" Well, they had presumptions about Jesus. That was it. Now, there was something that happened when the son finished the feast and the room. It's a year away now, a year out, from their betrothal. They're legally married. They can't live together. They've seen each other during this time chaperones, so that they would behave themselves, her wearing her veil and all of this. And then as the day approaches, he knows it's been about a year. He gets the feast done. He gets the room done. He calls his papa, come inspect the feast. He inspects the feast. Come inspect the room. He inspects the room. Good job, son. Great. And the son says, okay, dad, I want my bride. And the dad says, good son, I'll tell you when. You say, that would be terrible. Now, those of you men here who are married, you probably remember the night before you got married. I remember mine. My best man kidnapped me from a wedding rehearsal dinner and took me to Knott's Berry Farm which, of course, is a theme park in Southern California with some nasty roller coasters. And the two of us rode roller coasters until about two in the morning. That was the night before I got married. And while I'm riding these roller coasters, I love my friend. This is a fun experience, but all I know is I want my bride. Jesus is with his Father in heaven. You're his bride. He's the bridegroom. How do you picture him? I think he gave us a picture with a Galilean wedding, where he's there with his father. And I, I know this, this is just you know, sort of a, a, a fantastic way of, of looking at it, but it would be as if Jesus is saying to his father, Father, I want my bride. And the father says, I know, son, I'll tell you when. But, Father, I want my bride. He's not sitting there going, okay, Dad, and then he goes off and does something else. He loves his bride. He loves you. He wants his bride like any bridegroom wants his bride. But here's the thing that made a Galilean wedding a Galilean wedding. The Judean weddings didn't do this. The The Arab weddings didn't do it. But only the Galileans did because the Galileans were rebels and they liked to do things different. Their weddings were almost exactly the same as everybody else's in the region, except for this one thing. Their wedding (laughs) was a surprise wedding. And if you ask them what made it a surprise wedding, this is what they would tell you. Of that wedding... No one knows the day or the hour, not even the bridegroom, not his friends, only the father. Because only the father or the bridegroom could tell the bridegroom when to go get the bride, and nobody else had the privilege, so nobody else knew when it was going to happen. Does that sound familiar? It's not a random statement that Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour, just to sort them all out. Hey, if somebody says they know when Jesus is coming back, call them a liar to their face because they are. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. And it was based on this Galilean wedding tradition. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows that was part of the game. So the bride's got to be ready. She sleeps in her wedding clothes. They have the lamps ready to light. The girls, the bridesmaids, are in white linen with her. And they sleep with her because they don't know when the bridegroom's going to come because the Father is the only one who has the right to say when. The bridegroom, he's dressed in his wedding celebratory clothes. He's got his friends with him. The boys are in the room. They're packed in. They're waiting for the word. And then at one point during some night, the father comes over. The boy's holding an oil lamp in his hands. And and usually in the middle of the night was the best part. They loved to do it then. And he would reach down and wake up the son and say, son. What, dad? Son, get up. Why? Son, get up. But dad, go get your bride boing, he leaps up, I want my bride. He grabs a shofar, a ram's horn trumpet, and he lets out a blast on that thing out the window or from the roof that would wake up the entire village. This is the alarm clock. The villagers are the guests. The bride is in another part of the village, and this is her alarm clock. He makes all the noise he can, and the shout goes up, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. He joined, He's joined by his friends. They start dancing dancing around him and singing and chanting and having a great time. And he revels in the midst of them. And then they grab torches and they grab Kalils, these little horns that they have they grab drums, anything that will make noise, tambourines, and they start singing and celebrating, shouting Baruch HaBah Shemadonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. Some of the guys grab a litter, a chair between two poles that you would carry a queen on, as it were, and they go down the stairs, because they always slept upstairs, they go down the stairs and out into the street carrying the torches, making all this noise, but they don't go straight to the bride's house. They wander through the streets of the village, serpentine their way to the bride's house because the guests have to be woken up. And the guests throw on their tunics and their outer garments and then they rush down the stairs and they get in line with the processional because if they don't get in line with the processional, they're not going to make it to the father's house. They're going to get locked out. So this is how you gather the guests. And the line gets longer and longer and longer. It might have started with a dozen guys, but now it's going to 50 to 100 people. And they're serpentining through the streets, singing and dancing. And finally, they approach the bride's house. They come around the corner and here are the women when they heard the noise, they got the bride up, they straightened her out, knocked the wrinkles out of her clothes, fixed her makeup, gave her a bowl with an oil lamp in it. All the girls lit their oil lamps and they stood out in the street in the dark. And you can imagine with no ambient light and no street light being lit from below with these beautiful lamps. Oh, it's staggering. And you come around the corner and they look like angels. It must have been breathtaking. And here come the guys with the litter, and they barge through to the front of the line, and they set the litter down, and the bride very delicately in this huge, beautiful dress, holding that oil lamp. Now her makeup is beginning to run holding the lamp, but that's what she would do. And she sits down very, very ladylike on that that litter, that platform between the two poles. And then the boys, led by the bridegroom, Pick the bride up off the ground and in a beeline fly her with all the guests in tow to the Father's house where they go into the compound. Everybody goes in. The gate is locked. Nobody goes out. Nobody comes in. And the party goes on for seven days and nights. That is how Jesus described the end of the world. And in case you think, hmm, Well, the Jews knew this, but what about the Greeks? Paul, the apostle, who was not a Galilean, said to the Thessalonians, who were Greeks, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with a trumpet blast, and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That is a Galilean wedding. So it permeated the church. Even among non Galileans, and it even went to the Greeks. And they may not have even understood that, but the message remains even today. You've heard your pastor teach on this. Well, they're in the compound they're having the wedding. Now, The, it, the, the what, what's the, the Galilean wedding ceremony? It's the processional and the feast. And as they sit down at the feast, there's ratifications to the covenant that go back and forth, gifts given to the bride, blessings put upon them. And then the bridegroom pours that cup of wine and he takes a sip and he hands it to his bride and she takes a sip. Now they have drank of the cup of joy again in the father's house. That makes them officially married. And then he takes the bride by the hand at some point and they disappear up a flight of stairs or a ladder into the room that the bridegroom added onto his father's house because it's hard to expand out, but it's easy to expand up. Can you imagine ladies on your wedding night having to climb a ladder? Well, anyway, that's what she probably had to do. And they go up there and oh yeah, it's a little embarrassing for us, but everybody else in those days thought it was great. They consummate the marriage and then they come down and the party goes into high gear for until the seven days are up and they party and they have a wonderful time! And that's a Galilean wedding. Now, That takes us to something that I think is very interesting. Over in Revelation chapter 19, John has this continuing vision that God is giving him. And it might not even be a vision. God might have transported him there. He's actually seeing this somehow. We don't know how that worked. We just know it did. And he's writing it all down in the last book of the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 19, he says, And then I saw, or excuse me, I heard, as it were, the sound of a great multitude. Now, he's already described great multitudes in heaven. And one of the multitudes that he described, and this may be the same type of multitude or the same multitude, was thousands upon thousands of angels and 10,000 times 10,000 of them. Well, if you do the math and that were literal, and I think it's meant to say, no, it was just huge, huge number, you'd come up with 200 million angels. So there's a lot of angels up there, all different ranks, including the mighty cherubim who are like the worship leaders of heaven. And they're shouting. But wait a second, surrounding them are the saints. And John even said it was an uncountable number of the saints, which means A lot of people tragically are going to reject Christ and perish, but there's going to be a lot of people in heaven too. And for that I rejoice. All of these saints in heaven, all of these angels in heaven, all shouting at once, sounding like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, John says, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, The marriage of Jesus has come, and the bride has made herself ready. White linen, fine and clean, was given her to wear. White linen stands for the righteous works of the saints, John added. This is Jesus' marriage to you. You have been brought in. To him, bride, he has come and gotten you and taken you to his father's house. And now the wedding feast begins. It's a Galilean wedding that he used to describe that. I remember my wedding. I loved it. The next day after Knott's Berry Farm. At noon, I'm standing up on the stage in an all-white tuxedo. I look like a glass of milk. I was a hippie, so I could, I could reach up my back and grab my hair. I had a Fu Manchu mustache, and I weighed about, well, 40 pounds less than you see me now. And I'm standing there, and my bride with her father comes through the back door. Oh, she's beautiful. The prettiest wedding dress I have ever seen, a veil coming all the way down to where her hands clasped, White flowers rimmed with dark green shiny leaves that went all the way to the floor. The veil being so sheer, but yet she had cut her hair before she came through the door. And her hair, which is brunette, now looks jet black. And her eyes are brown but sparkling all the way from the back of the huge room at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. Her teeth are perfect and white, not like mine. Hers were perfect, and she's smiling, and it's for me. Ah, and her father on her right arm as he's walking her down... He looks like a WWF wrestler poured into this light blue polyester tuxedo with the ruffles in front. Well, it was 35 years ago, okay? And he walks her down the aisle looking very proud and looking at me like you'd better treat her right or you're going to have to deal with me. And he gives her to me at the bottom of the stairs and I walk her up to the top of the stairs and as I look into her eyes through that veil, she's smiling. And my bride's smile is for me because she loves me. Bride of Christ, do you love your bridegroom? What does he see when he looks into your face? Somebody who doesn't care or the traditions of men coming out at him? Or do I adore this bridegroom who loves me so much? And she was just shining. And I looked at her. And as I'm looking at her, I'm just saying, this is my bride. I have her. This is the day. And the minister starts speaking. And I didn't hear a word he said because it didn't really matter at that point to me. And then we made our covenant, and that was 35 years ago, and we're still there. But I will tell you this. The marriage of Jesus to you, his bride, I am convinced, you can disagree with me and I'll take that, but I'm convinced it's the best day in all eternity for God, for Jesus, and it'll be for you too. I think it's the best day of forever. Because everything in the Bible, from the moment God created the universe, points ahead not to the cross. The cross was a means. What was the end it was pointing to? Well, all eternity doesn't have an end. What was the event? That every, the reason God made the universe, the reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason Jesus went back to his Father, what is the end to which all of this was pointing to? Why did he clean us up? Why did he make us radiant? Why? Because it points to one event in all history. I believe it's the marriage feast of the Lamb. Because after you're wed to Him, when you read the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, everything that happens afterwards points back to that one event. Communion, remember, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Why is He coming? Because he wants to set the world straight? Great, that's true, but too vague. These people went with specifics. They didn't abstract well. There was something specific about why he's coming back. The cup, remember the cup. It's the cup of joy, and he won't drink of it again until he drinks it anew with you in his Father's kingdom. It's going to be a wedding. Jesus, God created the universe to create people. The people fall. He knew that was going to happen. He sends his son to redeem his people out of the earth. And he rings to himself a bride. And his second coming is all about him getting you. And after he has you, then whenever you find you in the Bible, it's with Jesus. If Jesus is in heaven, you're with him. If he's on the earth, you're with him. If he's coming back to destroy the armies at Armageddon, you're seeing his back. When he rules and reigns on the earth, you're ruling and reigning with him. When the earth and the universe as we know it is finally destroyed by fire, Jesus just completely dissolves it and creates a new heaven and a new earth, and you're there in the new Jerusalem, you're with him. When you now look for the church, you never find the church separate from Jesus for all eternity. That is wonderful. Wonderful. And the whole thing is summed up in a very unusual place because this is really the best description of the marriage feast of the Lamb you will ever see. Of the whole purpose of God from the moment He said be and everything came into existence until He destroys the universe and creates an eternal heaven and earth for us to stay in, the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. There is one verse that sums it all up. And you may not even know because we usually look at it in a different context. It's Ephesians 5.35. Husbands, love your wives. Wait, stop right there. That's for a different discussion. Let's leave that off just for a second because he says husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy by the washing with water through the word. Oh, in the Greek, Washing with water, if you were to find the Aramaic or the Hebrew equivalent of that word washing with water, it only translates with one word, mikvah, born again. Cleansing her with the washing with water through the word that he may present her to himself a radiant bride, holy and blameless without any stain or wrinkle. Folks, that one verse is not just talking about husbands should be like that. True. It's talking about the entire history of eternity from before God created everything till after everything continues forever and ever and ever. And the centerpiece is Christ's bride brought to him on that one great moment. Everything points to it. Jesus loves his bride. And when he looks upon you, you're radiant. But you say, what boy? I don't feel radiant. You don't know my thoughts. You don't know my actions. You don't know my sins. He's washed you. He's cleansed you by his own blood on the cross. The washing with water through the word, as it were. You have dipped in that mikvah, and it's as if you've never sinned at all. And when Jesus looks upon you, he doesn't see something broken or soiled. He says, radiant. But my sins, radiant. But my thoughts, Radiant. But my rebellion. Radiant. You are washed. You are my bride. You are with me forever. And I love you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. And listen to me, Jesus will tell you. It's until death us do part. And I never die again. And neither do you. It's forever. Jesus loves you. And this is why marriage is sacred. Because everywhere in the world, in every culture, among pagans and tribes and atheists and secularists and Europeans and Australians and Indians and everybody, all over the world, people of all different religions and no religions at all have one very interesting thing in common. Well, they have other things too, but one really interesting thing. Everybody does marriage. They may do it a little differently, but the same thing. Man, woman, married for life. That's what you see in marriage all over the world. Why do people do that? Why are they drawn to that? Why is it automatic in every society? That's a very sophisticated thing, marriage. It's because I am convinced God put that in every one of us. The way he wrote his law on our hearts so everybody knows the same right from wrong no matter where you go. I think he put marriage there too. To remind the world even if they never heard of him that the bridegroom, that's Jesus. And the bride, that's you. And this is what's going to happen someday. He has essentially greased the gears of the gospel so that when it comes into a group of people who have never heard it, you can say, you want to know what it's like to be with Jesus? Look at marriage. No matter what their traditions, it always ends up the same way. Two people together. Which is why... Adultery is wrong. Sin. Why? Because it's not like Jesus. He's betrothed to his bride and he will never go out on you. That's why adultery is sin, because it doesn't look like him. Marriage looks like him. Fornication. I don't like that word. Get over it. It's a great word for a bad sin. Why is fornication a sin? We call it premarital sex. fornication. Why is that wrong? Because Jesus doesn't do that, and his bride wouldn't do that to him. She's keeping herself pure for him. Doesn't look like Jesus. We look like him. And here's a big one living together as husband and wife without being married. You say, what's the problem with that? There's no covenant. And Jesus made a covenant with us. And besides, the only reason two people would live together as husband and wife without a covenant is so that they know when something goes wrong, one of them can cut out any time they want to because they don't have to stay. Jesus, the Bible said, he even said, I will never leave you or forsake you because that's what a bridegroom did to his bride when he made a covenant with her. He couldn't do it. He's related to her. It's until death us do part and he doesn't die. That's a Galilean wedding. It's the best day of forever. And it's coming, and you're the bride, and he's the bridegroom. And in the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, I've quoted a lot of scripture, but I'm going to open my Bible here for this one, because I want you to see this. This is the last chapter in the Bible. These are the last verses in the Bible. And as you're here, just after, just a few chapters after Jesus announces the marriage feast of the Lamb, and John tells us about it, then in chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus speaks for the last few times in the Bible, where he says... To his bride, because it's been talking about a bride and him being the bridegroom and you're the bride, he says to her, behold, I am coming quickly. And then in verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. And then in verse 17, who's he talking to? Look who responds. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride say, come and let him who hears Say, come. Second to the last verse in the whole Bible, verse 20 of Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things, who is that? My Bible's in red letters. It's Jesus, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Why? Just to come back? Nope. He's coming for a bride. He's coming for you because He loves you and He wants you and He wants you to be with Him. He's coming. Amen, it says. Oh, witnesses all shout. Amen. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The end of the Bible, but not the end of the story. Jesus is coming because he loves you.